Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Two Cups of Tea. I'm Chris Heath and today I've travelled up the A1 to Oakham to visit 85-year-old author Barry Ward. Here's a few teasing snippets of what you'll hear in today's show. I shared a flat with two New Zealand girls. Rugby is not the national sport of New Zealand, let me put it that way. <laughs> I spent a night at the Moulin Rouge in Paris after the French Championships with Rod Laver, Rod Emerson. Later, you realise the depth of the love you have for that person is unfathomable. My life has been an improbable journey. So let's go in and meet Barry and join some of those bizarre-sounding dots. Cue the cheesy title music. In 1946, it was my last day at school. I was 14 years old. And in those days, just after, in Nottingham, I'm a native of Nottingham, um, in those days... People like me left school at 14, worked in the lace market within two weeks, got a job in the lace market two weeks later. Doing what? Oh, just a clock. Right. And a male boy, really. And it was the last afternoon at school, and we were waiting for the results of our examination, the final exam. And there was nothing, as you probably recall, on the last day at school, not a lot gets done. <laughs> uh, some things never change. Some things never change. So the teacher, bless her, Mr. Baines, was talking very informally, casually, and he started talking about books. Mm. A books that had motivated him in his life and got him into the start of his career, the central theme of his existence. And he read a line. He said, what did you think of a book that starts like this? Last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. And the pause around the class, the quiet was, you could have cut with a knife. It had touched everyone. And it's the first line of Rebecca, Daphne de Maurice. Mm. Uh, I was inspired to go find Rebecca, and I did. Cut it out. I read it in a day, took it back, got two more. Read those in a, in a week, got two more, got two. And I read everything I could get my hands on, up to and including Lawrence, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, uh, but Hemingway particularly. Mm. So I read all these books, and uh, but furthered my limited education. I mean, it really was leaving school at fourteen. It's a it's a well rounded education. That's mm. <laughs> about the best you could say for it. And then I did national service. Yeah, where I was the RAF regiment in Germany for two years, and I boxed for the RAF, and I was boxing all over Europe. You boxed for the RAF. Yeah. Were you good? 
pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I boxed all over the all over Europe. And when I came out after two years, this was 1953, I had no qualifications, of course. Mm. I joined the Nottingham City Police Force, uh, mainly because of my boxing. I was a good, I was a sportsman, also a good cricketer. And they had very, very strong on cricket. They loved young recruits who were sportsmen because I was the shortest, smallest man ever. Is that because of the athleticism involved? Yeah. yeah. But no, the representative teams of the city police were very strong and very influential. Mm. Big cricket team, a couple of county players. Uh, and a very strong boxing team, a couple of amateur champions. <clears throat> so that's how I got in. I was the smallest man in the in the force, six foot. I was the smallest. You were the smallest at six foot. Yeah, so the, wow. the, 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 the very they were notorious for being very 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 tall. Mm. One of one of the recruits of my class was six foot six. <laughs> anyway, I did uh, two years probation with the, with the city police, and then I thought, well, much as I like this. Uh, the thought of walking the streets of Nottingham for the next 25 years in winter <laughs> doesn't grab me by <clears throat> any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> so I, well, I applied to the colonial police, the colonial office, and joined the colonial police force. Yeah. I could have gone anywhere from Hong Kong to Aden, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Rhodesia then. Uh, but I some, uh, popped the name Bermuda, although that had a certain distinct ring to it. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, just, I'm, I'm currently enjoying the sentence, up popped the name Bermuda. <laughs> so I said... And uh, how old were you at this point? I was, well, 20, I was 20 coming out of the Air Force. Yeah. Two years, 22. I was 23. Club coming up to 23. Yeah. So I stuck it over to Bermuda and became a, an honourable constable there. And uh, that was great fun. We paraded in shorts and... You know, it was wonderful, great stuff. But most importantly, they played cricket. Yeah. Very strong cricket team. And there was boxing. There was boxing every two weeks. Yeah. A show every two weeks at the uh, US Air Force Base at Kendley. Kendley. Kendley, which is now Bermuda Airport. Right. And I was the only white fighter on the island. So uh, I was in pretty much demand, you see. They wanted to see me. And so I'd go to Kindley every two weeks and have a bit of a punch-up. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, generally have fun, have a nice meal afterwards, and they use slippy 20, 30 bucks, very illegally, but mm. who, who we won't tell anybody, will we? And uh, But while I was there, I got to know the sports editor of the, of the local paper, the Royal Gazette. Yeah. He was an American named Bruno Brown. Good name. Lovely man. And... Uh, Sports man, he would have to be. And he always spoke to me afterwards and a chat. And I had discovered that at Kindley, the US, the, the University of Maryland ran what they call extension courses mm. for servicemen who wish to better themselves. I inquired and I told, yeah, it's open to the public. Would you like to come in? So I did two years of, uh, of a University of Maryland degree on American literature and English which has always been my ambition. I've been driven by it. Mm. Since uh, that since that first line from Daphne du Maurier kick-started exactly. everything. Exactly. In the course of one fight, uh, I saw, I said, I was here last night, Bruno. I'm getting, and then there's a taxi service from town. It's about 20 miles, too. <laughs> and he said, what are you doing last night? I said, well, I told him. I said, I'm going to the university. Mm. Really? He said, I've always wanted to write. He said, I, it's, it's, a, it's just a thing. I want to write. 
and I gave him, he was a prod, of course, and uh, he said, well, maybe you'd like to do a sports column for me. I said, that sounds like a good idea, a bit of cricket, a bit of boxing, a bit of athletics. Mm. He said, wonderful. A weekly column every Saturday, fine. I did that. Went down like a bomb. And uh, after about a month, the editor said, would you like a job? And so we're in Bermuda at the moment. Yes. So you, so you first became a journalist in Bermuda, in Bermuda as a sports columnist. That's right. Fantastic. And indeed, that's also where I started playing golf. By chance, I started playing golf. And by chance, it was the launch of the Bermuda Goodwill Golf Tournament, which is a major international program. Yeah. And they needed someone to cover the event. And Bruno shouted around the newsroom, who plays golf? And I was the only one to put my hand up. I've been playing three weeks. <laughs> and then Bruno says, you're my girlfriend. And I'll too, eh? How about that? <laughs> Amazing. Anyway, yeah. So then I did, the, uh, I did another three years in Bermuda with the Gazette. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, this is great. But at 26, 27, while it's an easy life, do I want this to be the end of it? Or is this, is this it? Mm. And no, I had ambitions. I wanted to do things. So I came back to Britain, back to Nottingham, my hometown, and uh, joined the Nottingham Evening Post. This is the key to most things, actually. It was a morning paper, the Gazette, so we worked until 1 a.m. This is in Bermuda? Yeah. Right, yeah. 1 a.m., we finished at 1 a.m., and there's a pub next door, of course, so we usually went in for a thirst quencher. Yes, I'm, I'm well aware of how journalists work. <laughs> <laughs> And in there, I met an Australian guy, a journalist, as it transpired. Mm. Just arrived. He was off half on holiday, half working trip. And I gave him a hand, introduced him to people, and uh, pointed him in the right direction for something he was doing. And he gave me his card. He didn't have a year in London. He looked me up. He happened to be the chief of the London Bureau of the Sydney Daily Telegraph Group, Australian Consolidated Press, which was Packer's Group, Frank Packer's Group. Right. So I said, okay, uh, I'll do that. Uh, I'll look you up. If when my mother lives in London, I said, I'm sure I'll be there eventually. Mm. So after a year in Nottingham, having returned to Britain then, after a year in Nottingham, I had to go to London to see my mother. And uh, I gave him a call. Sess McNulty, I gave Sess a call. I said, Sess, I'm in town next week. Would you like to see me? Shall we have lunch or something? And, Come on, yeah, come to my office, we'll have lunch. Over lunch, he said, my sports editor, European sports editor, Australian guy, young Sydney boy, wants to go back to Sydney. Would you like the job? So I said, <laughs> give me about two seconds to think about it. And then I, of course, of course. So for the next five years, I spent covering the Open Championship, Wimbledon, Le Mans, football, FA Cup. Out there, at the places, you were, you were covering all of these yes, yes, stories was, at the events. Yes, I what a dream job. I saw Patterson fight the sweet guy. I saw, I saw Herb Elliott. I saw the, the 1960 Olympics. I saw all sorts of uh, wonderful things. And, but that's how I got to Australia. Right. Eventually, after about five years, uh, I thought, well, it was a dreadful winter of 63, appalling winter of 63. Mm. And I'd married in Bermuda. My first wife mm. was a Bermudian girl, and she really didn't dig this weather at all. I can well imagine. So I said, how does Australia sound? This sounds like heaven to me, love. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got to Australia. 
The one thing I was going to ask you about was pre fourteen. So you know, just just from just from the very beginning. That was a, that was a driving force too. Actually, I was born in October nineteen thirty two. Yeah. In the back streets of Nottingham, not far from Victoria Baths, mm. Robin Hood Street. Actually. Oh wow! Of Robin Hood Street. Father was uh, a small businessman. He had the uh, had a major franchise at one point in the city. Mm. I went locally to school to the Bath Street School nearby, which is over the park. Mm. My mother walked out on the family when I was three and my brother was one. She just disappeared. She wanted she, she wanted to be in show business, so she went to London. Did you have you got any record of what happened to her? No. No, she died eventually. I met her much later, mm. uh, which is interesting. <laughs> uh, How so? As a bobby in Nottingham, I regularly passed a lending library, a little bookshop, which is a lending, the penny lending library. Do you know what that is? Yes. It was owned by my grandmother, my mother's mother. Right. And I knew that Graham owned this bookshop, so I walked in in uniform. Mm. Knocked on the door and opened the door. The little bell rang. Out she came. Didn't recognise me, of course. Hello, officer. What kind of it was? I said, hello, Gran. <laughs> oh, really? How did she react? She took my hat off and she started crying. And yeah. uh, I hadn't seen her for years and years. And years yeah. And, years. and come in and have a cup of tea. So I was on the, I was on duty, but what the hell? Yeah. Uh, I wasn't forbidden. Uh, so I did. And we started chatting. I said, would you like to see your mother? I'd never met my mother. I was 23 years old. I said, I'd love to see my mother. So she's here on Saturday. Oh, I said, I'm playing cricket for the city police on Saturday. Yeah. At the, at the city ground. And, um, and she'll come and see you. And she did. I was, And I was bowling when actually I saw my grand walk in with this lady. Mm. Walk in, it's a big crowd, but I could see her. And it was my mother, and that's how we met. What was that meeting like? Very traumatic. For for both of you? Or? No, no, she wasn't. She wasn't. She took it as... Because she dealt with it before when she made the decision. I don't think so, Chris. I think it was uh, Christine, my wife, never liked her. She said, I hate that woman. Mm. She's the most selfish person I've met. My uncle Les, my father's brother, said the same thing, mm. which probably gives a clue. So she seemed unmoved about it, by it. But we established a rapport. Uh, we had a drink afterwards, and uh, I went uh, whenever I went to London thereafter. I had a reason for going to London then. Mm. As a policeman, as a young man, didn't have it before. So I would go down once every two or three months, have a drink with her, and meet her present. Gosh, lived with for many, many years, actually. Mm. They were in show business. In vaudeville, what they call... Um, the musical. They worked for ENSA, the, the, the military. Yeah, I know ENSA. And the US version, there's something too. The US version in Germany. One day, I was boxing the US Air... We were boxing the US Air Force at uh, somewhere in Frankfurt, I think it was. And she saw me. She was there entertaining the troops on the same airbase. And she was at the boxing. And she recognised the name, but she didn't think it was me. It couldn't possibly be. But it was. It didn't, she didn't say anything there. She didn't approach me. But many years later, on well, this second or third meeting, I said, I know you were in Germany. Were you in Frankfurt around 
whatever date it was. She says, yes, was that you boxing? She says, it was. She saw me boxing. You were a rover. I was a rover, yes. Was it itchy feet or just, you know, just the, just the, I'm going to, why not? I'm just going to try this and let's just do it. Exactly. Uh, and my sons, I've instilled that into my two sons. Yeah. And they are both doing it and they're both very successful. Good. Uh, but that's what made me leave Nottingham in the first place for Bermuda. I thought, well, do I want to be doing this for 25 years? I might make sergeant. And I'm not going to start now looking forward to my pension. I'm 23 years old. I'm not going to. Yeah. There's got to be something more to it than this. Mm. What shall we do? What can I What? What can I do? And that was the point. What can I do? I'm very limited, of course. Colonial police, that's fine. I'll do that. See where that takes me. That took me into journalism, took me to London, took me some fabulous experiences, took me to Sydney. And indeed, Sydney is where I met Christine. So Christine's Australian? No, no. She's a Lancashire lass, or was, bless right. her. Think of this chain of events, or our meeting. We always said it was written in the stars. It mm. had to be. I was a member of the golf club. One of our good friends, a bunch of us, usually a bunch of six or eight of us, always very good friends. And one of them had a birthday. Mm. And he was a shy little guy, little Ray. I don't think he'd ever been with a lady. But I said, Ray, we're going to run a party for you on your birthday. I think it was his 40th, so it's fairly significant. We'll come to your home and we'll have a party. And I know a few ladies. I said, I'll invite a few girls. Is that all right? It got very exciting, actually. So I was in the kitchen of this, of Ray's house, doing my world-famous spaghetti bolognese, you see. Mm. I'm renowned all over the world for my spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> <laughs> I was making a spaghetti bolognese for uh, Ray's guests. There were about 20 of us. Yeah. Including about eight or ten rather lovely ladies whom I knew through journalism. A couple of lady reporters. And uh, and in fact, at that time, I shared a flat with two New Zealand girls who were, shall we say, rugby is not the, not the national sport of New Zealand. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I'm afraid I know what you're talking about. You don't know what I'm talking about? No, I'm afraid I do. <laughs> rugby is not the national sport of New Zealand. And I live with these two lovely ladies. Uh, and they were they came along and invited a few friends, and there was a certain amount of nudity went on. Yeah, we gave Ray a good party. It was at the time in Sydney when the the first topless lady appeared at Bondi Beach. Horror, shock, horror, drama. And the next week there were twenty of them. The next week there were hundred. <laughs> and suddenly nudity in Sydney became for the blase. People had nude cocktail parties and nude dinner parties. And I was a bachelor for ten years between marriages. Over this period. Yeah. I'll leave you to the rest of your imagination. Okay. Uh, so all these ladies came along, and I said, there was a certain amount of nudity, no one minded. We didn't object, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and after a little while, I was doing this cooking, and in they walked this lady, and it was Christine. Yeah. We just looked at each other, and it was like two trains colliding. And that was it. That's how it should be, isn't it? That was it. She walked up to me and she stood up here and looked in my eyes and said, Hello, I'm Christine, who are you? I said, I'm Barry. How lovely to see you. And she was a stunningly beautiful creature. She was, 20, she was 14 years younger than I. Mm. I was approaching 40. She was 26, 25 at that time. Mm. We were together a year before we married. She had auburn hair, long hair. 
and she was wearing a figure-hugging red dress, which I still have upstairs. It's the only item of her clothing that I can't get rid of. Yeah. Um, but that was it. We were together that night and forever afterwards. Forever afterwards, for 43 years. That's lovely. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So when you met Christine in Sydney at what sounds like at least a partially new dinner party, <laughs> um, that's when you were working for the, the paper out there? That's what I was doing then. I was a virtually freelance, but I was working full-time. To jump kind of a little bit back then, what were the memorable personalities you met when you were there? I spent a night at the Moulin Rouge in Paris after the French championships with Rod Laver, Rod Emerson. Roy Emerson, uh, Fred Stolley, and John Newcomb, and all the lads, all went out and got slashed together. <laughs> Goodness me, that's one of those boasts you want you want to keep for the for the top rank, isn't it? I wonder once went, went to the Moulin Rouge with Rod Laver. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Of all the people who you you know met and drank with, who was it? You know, in the world of sports, certainly that that just that blew you away was the one you'll never forget. The one that stands out in terms of sport was Cassius Clay, who became Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Uh, it was 1962, I think it was. He came over for the first fight with Henry Cooper. Yeah. Then the British champion. I arranged to meet him in one morning at the Simpsons in Piccadilly, where he was staying. Mm. I staggered down there, and uh, I saw in the lounge I bumped into Angelo Dundee, his trainer, as arranged. Angelo Dundee was his world-famous trainer, as mm. a big guy was number one man in boxing then. And he said he's still asleep. And he was on the road this morning. He runs we ran around Ride Hyde Park. To do it every morning. I did when I was boxing, I ran every morning. Mm. I said, that's okay. He said, but he might be awake now. Let's have a look. Yeah, let's go see if he's awake. So we went upstairs and quietly and he opened our Cassie was lying on his bed. Over one eye we came in. Who there? <laughs> says, this is the reporter come to see you, Cassius. Oh, okay, just give me a minute. And he got up. He was stark naked. <laughs> he got up. He just went up and up and up. I didn't realize how tall he was. I mean, I'm six foot tall. Yes. Yeah. And he was a good five inches taller than me. 
And he wasn't grow, fully grown by that time. I mean, he was only 22. Yeah. He later matured. I mean, he put on about another four or five stones after that. Yeah. And not, none of it was fat or muscle. But, well, we had a wonderful hour. Spoke about this. Did he that. put his clothes on at any point? No, no. Well, yeah, he put a dressing gown on. Yeah. <laughs> he, went to, he went to the bathroom and got a bathroom. So it's not, yeah. That would have been distracting, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Uh, I can honestly say that interviewing a nude Cassius Clay <laughs> would have been distracting. Yes. <laughs> uh, and here was the interesting thing about what made him memorable. Initially, he was all bravado. The, the real Louis Will Lip, as he was renowned to be. Mm. Who is the greatest? I am the greatest. So you've got to sit there and don't, don't, don't tell me I'm not, sort of thing. Yeah. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, he just became a normal guy. And we spoke about a lot of things. Mm. And I think that's what made him memorable, the fact that suddenly he realised that he's a showman, really. Yeah. And that's what made him successful. Must be quite interesting to see that side of people that other people don't get to see. Well, the next, the, the, the next person then, how about this, Vincent Price? You, you meant Vincent Price? Oh, yes, but the oh day will... God, he wasn't naked, was he? <laughs> because of my connections in sport, uh, I was often called upon to interview celebrities. Yeah. His agent got hold of the, of the news ad, who happened to be me, and yeah. said, Vincent Price is in town, would you like an interview? I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to, love to. I'll do it myself, uh, come and meet him. He was the most memorable character I've ever met. Mm-hmm. He was an actor, and for those who don't remember him, he appeared in a lot of horror films. Oh, yes. And he played a grotesque characters sometimes. Mm. He said, that acting, he says, that's nothing. He said, that's just fun. He says, I don't rely on that. I just have some fun doing that. It brings me a little income. He said, a couple of billion a year. I said, so what do you do there? And I said, well, he was a buyer, among other things, he was a buyer for Sears Roebuck. Vincent Price was the buyer for Sears and Roebuck. Sears Roebuck. Well, as, as in, we used to go out and find products for them. To no, find. no, not, not just products. No, no, he bought art for them. He was an expert on art in all its form, modernistic and, uh, and classical. And he would buy art. He went around the world looking at art and buying art for Sears Roebuck. That's astonishing. Well, yeah, that's only one part of it, though, yeah. He was also the ambassador for the Californian Wine Association, who paid him squillions. Yeah. And he went around the world promoting a Californian wine. That's what he was doing in Australia, actually. Looking at the Australian wine industry. Looking at the new world wine industry. New world wines. Uh, and he was... But he was a great humanitarian. He was a great reader. He was a very good writer. He's a man of inordinate gifts. You've clearly been all over the world. Are there any experiences in terms of your travels that really stick in your mind? When we came back from Sydney, when we came to London, I was became, in time, the travel editor of Golf Monthly magazine. Wow. Which is the leading golf magazine here. As a golf writer, I, as a as a golf travel writer, which is what I virtually was. Yeah, I knew that the tourist boards all knew me. All those who offered golf as a major tourist attraction, right, would would contact me from time to time. I had the Irish tourist board, 
three or four times a year. Yeah. You know, come on, we've got something you wanted to see. Oh, we want you to taste the Guinness. Make sure it's up to strength. <laughs> so everybody at Scottish Tourist Board too and the Welsh people. I imagine you were very well treated as a travel writer. You could say that. Whoa. It's a standing joke in the club. Have you ever paid for a holiday ward? That's a cushy number, isn't it? Well, it's hard work. I bet. <laughs> you said had, that with a straight face. Well done. had to do it. Yeah, so the Morocco Tourist Board invited me to a function in London one evening and uh, they were launching, a, opening a new golf course. The tour, the tour operator, the outgoing tour operator from here, a Moroccan guy, yeah. became a good friend. He ran a tour operating company called the Marrakesh Express and he had me out to go out to Morocco two or three times a year. He was very well connected yeah. to the royal family, all of whom were golfers. The Moroccan royal family? Yeah. Right. All of whom were golfers. And it was the 50th anniversary of the King's reign coming up. Mm. He said, I've been commissioned to do a book on Moroccan golf for the King. Yeah. Would you do it? It meant seeing every golf course in Morocco. So you were asked to write, you were commissioned to write a book on Moroccan golf. For the, for the royal family. For the royal family. Yes. Whenever you say one of these stories, I keep thinking little lad, a clerk at the lace market in Nottingham. And kind of putting them next to each other and just thinking, if you told the little lad at the lace market what you would be doing, writing books from the Moroccan royal family, would he think you were taking the mickey? Isn't it astonishing? Yeah, it is astonishing. My life has been an improbable journey. See, that's the thing I think is the impressive part. The life you've had in terms of golf travel writing and writing books for the the Moroccan royal family and things like that, it sounds like the kind of life that you would have if you did have the luxury of coming from money and can just tool around the continent to get your heart's content and just just think, I think I'll do something like this now just because you know you've got things to back it up. But you never had that. That's just just a life you carved out for yourself. Oh, that's one way of putting it. But essentially, it's a question of luck, Mm. contacts, good friends who were people in interesting places. Yeah. So yourself and Christine come back. What's the, what is the new chapter when you're back in when you're back in Britain? We went back to Southport initially. Southport is her hometown. Yeah. And I was on the local paper for one miserable year. <laughs> so well, I imagine after so I didn't after, stay very long. No, after the excitement of the you know and and the, <laughs> and the adrenaline that you would have had before, I can't imagine that you know the local paper in Southport would have given you the thrills and spills that you were looking for. Oh, yeah. We drove around the country for. A month, mm. looking for somewhere nice to settle. Then we went down to Worthing. Yeah, I met uh, Colin, Calendar, the editor, who I knew anyway. The the editor got monthly. Yeah, and he offered me a job. He started some work for him. So I need somebody to write travel. Are you free? Oh, mm. Of course. What's involved? I became travel editor. So does that mean more cushy numbers? <laughs> no, no, it's very hard. <laughs> Actually, it, it sounds romantic, but I mean, I was away for two weeks out of four. Yeah. Well, the, the only great thing about that was the joy of coming home again. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was uh, a family occasion. I mean, Christine and I were still very romantically inclined. I mean, truly. Yeah. It was a great love affair. You talk about her so fondly. She was the light of my life. Um, she was the most remarkable lady. Hmm. 
she was a lady who she spent most of her life helping people. Yeah. Vulnerable, the underprivileged, elderly, the lonely. She just helped everyone. And she helped me a great deal, of course, too. So you could say, yes, I, had, I loved her rather more than I can explain. Mm. I've, I've thought recently, in fact, an interesting point here. It was a wonderful love affair. I'd say it lasted 43 years. Mm. I was with her when she died. I thought I couldn't love her more. Be impossible, but only afterwards did I realize that I didn't go quite deep enough. I really could have gone much deeper. Mm. It was, I still think about her every day and every morning, every night. Mm. One of the things I picked up, I've learned in my old age. Mm. And I am old now. But in your 85 years, what lessons have you learned? I guess. Uh, Perhaps the most important one is that, is about love, to value love, mm. true love. I mean, uh, I made a mistake with my first marriage. That was my error, my mistake, my fault, mm. my, the breakup of my first marriage. Right. I learned from that. Then I met Christine and learned what real love was like. Mm. But it was only when she went that I realized how deep it should have been. Yeah. The true value of love is something you never really know, I think, until it comes too late. Mm. I think that's the best way of putting it. No, it's very true. Later, you realize the depth of the love you have for that person is unfathomable. Mm. Unfathomable. Uh, our ashes are in the garden here. Yeah. But I can't leave, so I can't leave. I don't want to leave the house anyway. Yeah. It's a beautiful home. And presumably full of memories that you don't want to leave. She's mm. in every room. I know you, you told me that after Christine passed, it sounds like something good came out of that with the work that you did, you know, with the with the involvement you had with the campaign to end loneliness. Yes, I'm still working for them now. I'm writing for them now. I'm a sort of media consultant for them now. Fantastic. It was indeed uh, because of her. I wrote a book about her, mm. a book in memoriam for future generations of the family. Yeah, telling about this lovely lady and how, she, and recounting the year of the final year of her life, of mm. course, which is pretty horrendous. Uh, but mainly for future generations of the family, to show what a remarkable lady their forebear was. Mm. And what's the name of the book? Remembering Christine. Quite a number of people have seen it, read it. I've had a lot of appreciative comments about it from people who read it. It's, it's, a big, it's virtually a, a a guide to bereavement and, and well, a was, guide to grief. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because actually it sounds like whilst it's a very personal recollection of, of your own love, it would have enough stuff that unites us all to be helpful to anyone who's lost someone. Yeah. I interviewed people in similar situations to discover how they had coped, what had happened, how they got around it, how they were... All the usual questions. Mm. It does interviews. Was it painful to write at the time? No. Really? No, no. 
a couple of chapters now I cry over now. Yeah. But uh, when I read some of the things about her mm. in her life, mm. uh, no, it wasn't painful at all. In fact, it was, it was great therapy. Yeah. I was in agony anyway. Mm. I was an emotional cripple, mm. truly. This helped me through it. So it couldn't have made, you know, it made things better. It yeah, of course. It helped me through it. Yeah. But when I'd finished that, I needed something else. Mm. Uh, Jonathan, my son, said, you, you've got to keep going, you know, you know, don't let yourself stagnate. Yeah. You need another project. Along came Campaign for man. Loneliness. Yeah. I read a piece about the executive director, Laura, in the Daily Telegraph, and uh, she just launched something or other. I wrote them offering some writing about grief and loneliness, which are very similar. Mm. And I was approached by Alice, and we had lunch in London, and uh, I met her mainly because I thought she wanted me to to write for her, which I did, of course. But she said, would you like to appear in a film? Mm. So I thought, well. So was, that that your first, was, was that your first starring role in a movie? Is it, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's just, but... Uh, yeah, so that's how I became involved with that. And to it, too, I found it been enormously therapeutic. It has been life-affirming for me, mm. truly. To think that, as I say, it, it's a tribute to Christine. She helped mm. others. She would be delighted to know what I'm doing now. Good. That's the essence. I think it's as fitting a tribute as you can possibly pay. <laughs> thank you. Barry Ward, thank you very much. It's my great pleasure. It's been quite exciting, hasn't it? It was. I've I've got so wrapped up for the last few minutes, I forgot to drink my tea. Well, that was Barry Ward. What a lovely old boy. I have to say, he didn't look 85, but the dates all match up, so I'll have to take his word for it, I suppose. The point of this podcast is to show that there's no such thing as an ordinary life and to share some belting stories. And Barry did that in style. But not everyone has people in their lives to talk to. There are well over a million chronically lonely people in the UK. If you'd like to know more about how we can start to put a stop to that, then please go online and visit campaigntoendloneliness.org. It's so worth a click. Thanks again to Barry. And also thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. See you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.